Shall we pray? Our beloved Heavenly Father, once again we come before your presence to request that you will be with us in our study today. We're going to study something that is of extreme importance. In fact, it's at the very core and center of the truth that we find in Holy Scripture. And so we ask that you will open our minds and open hearts, that your word will not return unto you void, but that it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd just like to review briefly as we begin what we studied in our last lecture together. If you remember, we studied the reasons why Jesus had to come to live with us in the camp as a real, genuine man. In other words, Jesus adopted real humanity, real mortal humanity, in fact. Now let me review the seven reasons why Jesus became incarnate. Number one, he became incarnate so that he could reveal to us what God is really like, because Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. No one better to reveal what God really is like. Secondly, we notice that Jesus came to the camp to live with us so that he could die for our sins. See, God cannot die. God is immortal. And so Jesus had to assume humanity in order for it to be possible for him to die. In the third place, we notice that Jesus had to become a man so that he could be tempted, because the Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted. God cannot be deceived by the devil, because God is omniscient. God knows all. He's omnipotent. The devil cannot lead God into sin. And so Jesus had to assume humanity so that he could be tempted in a real way. In the fourth place, we notice that Jesus had to become a man so that we could have the assurance that he sympathizes and empathizes with us, that Jesus truly understands us when he represents us before God. Then we notice that Jesus had to become a man so that he could serve as our judge. In other words, he had to be a man so that he could uh, present us before God as our advocate and judge us in a fair way. And so then in the judgment, there is no excuse for sin. And then we notice that Jesus came to this earth to live a perfect life as a man so that he could impute his righteousness to us. That means credit his righteousness to us. And secondly, to impart his righteousness to us, which means that he actually sheds into our hearts his righteousness so that we live the life that Jesus lived. And finally, we notice that Jesus took human nature so that he could prepare a place for us in heaven so that he could eventually come back to receive us unto himself. And so we noticed seven reasons at least for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, for him coming to this earth to live with us in the sanctuary encampment. We haven't even entered the court of the sanctuary yet. 
We have just spoken about Jesus living in the camp where Israel lived, and tonight we are going to talk about Jesus entering the court of the sanctuary. I just like to say that the court had two main pieces of furniture, and you see them illustrated here on the platform. First of all, you have on the far end the altar of sacrifice. That was as you entered the court of the sanctuary. And then a little bit farther in, right before you go into the holy place of the sanctuary, you have what is called the laver, which had water in it where the priest washed himself before he went to minister in the holy place of the sanctuary. Now we're going to notice that these two pieces of furniture actually refer to two functions of Jesus Christ or two events of the life of Jesus Christ. We notice that the camp represents the life of Jesus where he came to live in our midst. Now the altar of sacrifice represents the death of Jesus Christ. And the labor, we're going to notice, represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Jesus, after that, goes into the holy place of the sanctuary, and the holy place is in heaven. Allow me to say that there is no sanctuary court in heaven. And the reason for that is that the work of the court was done by Jesus on the earth. You see, he lived with us in the camp on earth. He died on earth, and he resurrected on earth. So in heaven, all we have is a holy and most holy place. The court is the earth where Jesus carried forward his work as one living with us, as one dying, and as one resurrecting from the dead. Now we need to ask the question, why did Jesus have to come to live a perfect life and to die? Well, let's take a closer look at this and understand why Jesus had to come and live a perfect life and why Jesus had to come to die. The first thing that I want us to notice is that the law of God demands absolute perfection. The law of God says, obey me and live. But it also says, disobey me, and that is sin, and the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. So basically the sequence is, the law demands absolute perfection. If I cannot offer the law the perfection that it demands, that is sin, and the wages of sin or the result of sin is death. Of course, the question is, how many of us have sinned? The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So we are all on death row. None of us can offer the law the perfect life that the law demands. And so the law says, because you can't offer me the perfect life that I require so that you can live, you must die. And so Jesus came to this earth for several reasons we mentioned, but I want to emphasize and underline two particularly. Number one, Jesus came to this earth to live the life that all of us should live. Jesus came to live a life in perfect harmony with the law, and he lived that life for everyone. 
But Jesus not only came to live the life in my place, in your place, so that I in him can stand before the law, not guilty, not because I am righteous, but because he is righteous. But Jesus also had to come to pay for our sins. He had to come to pay for the sins that we have already committed. And so Jesus came to this earth, first of all, to live the life that we should live, and he came to die the death that we should die. And he lived and he died for every single person who has ever drawn breath on planet earth. In other words, Jesus came to live and to die in place of everyone, so that if I receive Jesus Christ, he takes his life and places it to my account. And he takes his death and he places it to my account. And God looks upon me as if I have never sinned, not because I haven't sinned, but because Jesus never sinned. Is this point very clear? It's the center and core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we want to talk this evening about the work of Jesus in the court. We've already discussed his perfect life. Now we want to talk about his death at the altar and his resurrection at the laver or the washing of the water. Now there are several prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to the death of Jesus Christ in the court. And I would like us to analyze or take a look at some of those prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. The first of these prophecies is found in Genesis chapter 22. And so I invite you to go with me to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. This is the story of the sacrifice, or we might say the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, in this story, Abraham plays the role of God the Father. And Isaac plays the role of Jesus Christ. This is a symbolic story. It's an illustrative story of the relationship between God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice Genesis 22 and verse 2, a couple of very interesting details. It says here, Then He said, this is God speaking, Take now your son, your what? Your only son. By the way, that word only should be translated your unique son or your one-of-a-kind son, your special son. You say, how do we know that? Because Isaac was not Abraham's only son. You see, the Hebrew word yahid means unique. It means one-of-a-kind. It means special. Abraham also had Ishmael at this point. And yet Isaac is called Abraham's unique, one-of-a-kind son because he was the son of the promise. But now notice that he's not only called the unique son or the only son, but it says, whom you what? Whom you love. Does this sound familiar? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so it continues saying, take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a what? See, there's the altar of sacrifice. Offer there 
him there as a burnt offering. Notice that he wasn't only to kill him, but he was to also what? Burn him. That's what happened at the altar in the sanctuary. And it says, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, what's interesting in this story is the agony of Abraham and his son, primarily of Abraham, lasts three days. I want you to notice Genesis chapter 22 and verse 4. Abraham actually offers Isaac on the third day of his journey. It says in Genesis 22 and verse 4, Then on the third day... Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place, what? Afar off. Let me ask you, how long did the agony of the father and his son last when Jesus was on this earth? It lasted also what? It lasted also three days. Another interesting detail is that in this story, Abraham places the wood on the shoulders of Isaac. But Abraham has the knife and the fire. Now that's very significant. Let's read. Notice what we find there in Genesis chapter 22. It says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And now Isaac his son carries the wood. Let me ask you, who was it that carried the wood upon which it was placed? Jesus Christ. But Jesus was smitten by whom? Isaiah 53 says, by his father. And that's why Abraham has the knife and he has the fire. So it continues saying, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. And now we reach the climax of the story. When Isaac is about to be sacrificed... Something spectacular happens. Go with me to Genesis chapter 22, and let's read verses 12 through 14. This is an extremely significant passage. It says, And Abraham said, My son, because Isaac has asked the question, you know, we have the wood, and we have the fire, and we have the knife, but where is the sacrifice? He says, And Abraham said, My son, God will what? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Who was going to provide the lamb? God was going to provide the lamb for himself. And it says, so the two of them went what? Together. Very significant. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. And now notice, was this a substitutionary sacrifice? Was it a substitute for Isaac? Absolutely. It says he offered him up, offered uh, it up for a burnt offering. How? Instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, do you know that according to the Bible, Abraham, at least in figure or in a metaphorical sense, received Isaac from the dead on the third day? You say, where does the Bible say that? Go with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, 
and verses 17 through 19. Let me ask you, was Isaac as good as dead for Abraham? He most certainly was. But what happened on the third day? On the third day, Abraham received his son back how? Alive. Now notice Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his what? See, that word is not correctly translated, only begotten son. It really means his unique or special or one-of-a-kind son. The word monogenes in the Greek language doesn't mean uh, only begotten. It means the unique or special or one-of-a-kind son, just like it does in Genesis 22. And so it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises over offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And now notice, concluding, that is, Abraham concluded that God was able to what? To raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a what? In a figurative sense. Did Abraham receive his son back alive on the third day? He most certainly did. And so we have this beautiful picture of a father and a son, the unique son, whom the father loved. And they suffer together. And the ordeal lasts three days. But on the third day, the son is given back to the father alive. This is a beautiful image of the relationship between God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and the suffering that they went through as Jesus gave His life for the sin of the world. And so in Genesis chapter 22, we have this beautiful picture that illustrates what Jesus was going to do when He came to this earth to die for our sins. But there are other prophecies in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 12 has another prophecy. This is the prophecy about the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The Bible tells us that every male in Israel had to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Every male 12 years and older had to go to celebrate the Passover and unleavened bread in the city of Jerusalem every year. Now it's interesting to notice that the Passover gives the day, it gives the month, and it gives the hour when the Passover lamb was supposed to be sacrificed. Let's notice Exodus chapter 12 and verses 5 through 7. Exodus chapter 12 and verses 5 through 7. Speaking about the Passover lamb, it says, Your lamb shall be what? There's something very interesting. Without blemish. A male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until what? The 14th day of the same month. If you look at the context, it's the month of Nisan, the first month of the Hebrew religious year. So he's supposed to sacrifice it the 14th day of the same month. That is the month of Nisan. But it not only gives us the day and the month, it also gives us the hour. Because it continues saying, Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at 
twilight. I'll come back to that in a minute. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. It was supposed to be sacrificed at what hour? At twilight. You say, what's that twilight thing? Literally in Hebrew, it says between the two evenings. That's what it literally says, between the two evenings. You see, what two evenings is this talking about? Are there, is there such a thing as two evenings? Absolutely. You see among the Jews, the first evening is when the sun reaches its zenith or its climax and it begins its descent. That's the first. It starts the afternoon hours or the evening hours, if you please. The second evening is when the sun sets. And so what would between the two evenings be? It would be exactly in the middle between when the sun begins its descent at noon and when the sun actually sets. What time would that be? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Do you know what time Jesus died? The Bible says that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last. Now you say ninth hour. Is that three o'clock? Yes, because among the Hebrews, the first hour was 6 a.m., the third hour was 9 a.m., the sixth hour was noon, the ninth hour was three o'clock, and the twelfth hour was when the sun set. That's why Jesus said, doesn't the day have 12 hours? Are you with me? So the ninth hour is three o'clock. Jesus not only died on the 14th day of Nisan, but he died exactly at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just like the Passover prophecy indicated. By the way, the New Testament makes it very, very clear that Jesus fulfilled the Passover himself. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 tells us that Passover was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It says there, the Apostle Paul writing, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was what? Was sacrificed for us. Who is our Passover? Jesus Christ. Did Jesus die the very day of the Passover? Yes. Did he die the very month of the Passover? Yes. Did he die at the precise hour in which the Passover lamb was sacrificed? Absolutely. You know, some people are amazed at the prophecies of Nostradamus. But really, if you look at the History Channel, it's a bunch of speculation, a bunch of words where you have to add interpretation and you have to use your imagination. Here you don't have to use your imagination. It gives you exactly the day, the hour, and the month when Jesus Christ was going to die, and he died exactly at that time. And this was written 1,500 years before Jesus was born. An amazing prophecy. Now there's another prophecy that gives us the year of the death of Jesus Christ. You see, the Passover, Passover gives us the hour, the day, and the month. But there's another prophecy that gives us the year when Jesus was going to die. It's called the Prophecy of the Seventy Weeks. And we're going to have two whole lectures on the Prophecy of the Seventy Weeks. One lecture isn't enough to cover this prophecy. There's just so much material. So we're going to dedicate two whole sessions to speak about the Prophecy of the Seventy Weeks. However, I want to uh, dedicate just a few moments 
to read from uh, Daniel chapter 9 and verses uh, 26 and 27 where this prophecy is, uh, gives us the exact year in which Jesus was going to be sacrificed as the Lamb. It says in verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, when it says after the 62 weeks, it's 7 and 62, that is after 69 weeks, Messiah shall be what? Shall be cut off, but not for himself. Why was Messiah going to be cut off? Was he going to be cut off for himself? No, he was going to be cut off for others. And then notice verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This is week number 70 of the, of the 70 weeks. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the what? In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to what? To sacrifice and offering. And when we study this prophecy, we're going to notice something amazing. Jesus began his ministry in the year 27 A.D. That's when he was baptized. Three and a half years later, in the middle of the last week, Jesus Christ died on the cross. And then three and a half years later, probation closed for the Hebrew theocracy. In other words, Jesus died exactly in the year 31 at springtime during the Passover. This prophecy pointed to the exact year in which Jesus was going to die on the cross. An amazing prophecy for sure. And by the way, did you notice that it says here that he would cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease? Now I want to read you a very interesting statement from that classic biography of Christ, The Desire of Ages. Do you know that that was literally fulfilled? that Jesus made the sacrifice and the oblation or the offering to cease? Let me just read you a short description that is given in Desire of Ages about the moment when Jesus died. Here Ellen White states, All is terror and confusion because there's been this gigantic earthquake and the veil of the temple has been ripped from top to bottom. She continues saying, the priest is about to slay the victim. But the knife drops from his nerveless hand and the lamb escapes. Did he cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease? Yes, he did. There was no sacrifice that day. So she says, but the knife drops from his nerveless hand and the lamb escapes. And then she, she sees the relationship between type and anti-type, between what we find prophesied and the fulfillment of the prophecy when she says, type has met anti-type in the death of God's Son. The great sacrifice has been made. So Jesus literally, in the year 31 A.D., 3 o'clock in the afternoon, on the 14th day of Nisan, fulfilled the prophecy concerning the Passover lamb, which is represented once again by the altar of sacrifice. But there were other prophecies. We have, for example, the morning and evening sacrifice. In the sanctuary, a morning and evening sacrifice was uh, offered and placed upon the altar of sacrifice. Let me just read that to you. Exodus 29 and verses 38 and 39. It says here, now this is what you shall offer 
on the altar, that is this altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, that is, between the two evenings, three o'clock in the afternoon. In other words, the sacrifice of the lamb, morning and evening, pointed forward to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But there were other prophecies. Notice Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4 through 6. Isaiah 53 and verses 4 through 6. It's speaking here about the Messiah over 700 years before Jesus is born. And it says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded. Listen carefully. Remember that uh, the prophecy said that it would not be for Himself, the prophecy of the 70 weeks? He would be cut off, but not for Himself. Notice what it says here. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, is this prophecy referring to Jesus Christ? It most certainly is. The New Testament applies it to Jesus Christ. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. And we'll read verses 32 through 36. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that was met by Philip. And the eunuch is studying Isaiah 53, and he can't make any sense out of it. He says, who is this prophecy talking about? Let's pick up this story in verse 32. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Is he quoting Isaiah chapter 53? Absolutely. Now notice. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at, that script, at this scripture, he what? He preached Jesus to him. Who is the center of the prophecy of Isaiah 53? Jesus Christ. Notice 1 Peter chapter 2, and verses 23 and 24, where Isaiah 53 is referred to again and applied to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Speaking about Jesus, it says, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And then comes a quotation from Isaiah 53, by whose stripes you were healed. Did Peter understand that the prophecy of Isaiah 53, of uh, this Messiah being taken as a lamb to the slaughter, did he understand that this applied to Jesus Christ? He most certainly did. Once again, all of this points to the altar of sacrifice. 
All of these prophecies are showing, showing that Jesus was going to come and Jesus was going to die for our sins. Notice another interesting prophecy that we find in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in Jesus. Numbers chapter 15 and verses 2 and 3. Numbers 15 and verses 2 and 3. Here it says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land, you are to inherit, you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, remember those words, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or in your appointed feasts to make a what? A sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock. So in other words, the sacrifices were what before God? A sweet aroma. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 to find out who this applies to. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. Here the Apostle Paul is going to apply this idea that the sacrifices and offerings were a sweet aroma. He's going to apply it to Jesus Christ. It says there in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us a what? Remember the words? An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. To whom does this prophecy in Numbers point to? It points to Jesus Christ. Let me mention just two other prophecies. Leviticus chapter 22 and verses 20 to 22. It's speaking about choosing a lamb for the sacrifice. The Bible tells us that the lamb had to be unblemished. In other words, the lamb was examined very carefully to make sure that the lamb physically did not have any defect. Now you need to understand that a lamb is an animal. All they could do is examine it physically to see that it didn't have a defect. But that represented the fact that Jesus had no moral defect. You see, the type is always more uh, uh, imperfect than the anti-type. In other words, the shadow is never as clear as the reality to which the shadow points. So in the Old Testament, you could only determine that the lamb had no physical blemish or defect, but that represented the fact that Jesus had no moral defect in his character. Notice what we find here in Leviticus 22, verse 20. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed, or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. In other words, the lambs had to be without blemish and without defect. Now what about the priest? Did the priest also have to be without defect? Absolutely. Go with me to Leviticus 21 and verses 17 to 21. Leviticus 21, 17 to 21. Once again, the priests in the Old Testament, they could only determine that they had no physical blemish. But that represented the fact that Jesus Christ had no physical or moral blemish. In other words, the shadow is not as perfect as the reality to which the shadow points. Now let's read Leviticus 21, verse 17. 
speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. Let me ask you, what did the lamb represent? The lamb represented the unblemished lamb that was sacrificed and placed on the altar represented Jesus Christ. What did the priest represent? The priest also represented whom? The priest also represented Jesus Christ. You say, well, how could the priest and the lamb both represent Jesus Christ? It's very simple. You see, the Bible says that Jesus offered himself. In the Old Testament system, you needed a priest to offer the lamb, but Jesus is the priest and the lamb because Jesus offers himself. And he's undefiled. Notice Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 on this point. Hebrews chapter 7, 26 and 27. It says here, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is what? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And now notice, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he what? When he offered up himself. What kind of priest was Jesus Christ? He was an unblemished what? Priest. And he officiated his own sacrifice. Was he also a perfect lamb? Yes, he was. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Listen, these prophecies are much more precise than Nostradamus could have ever given. You know, I, I've been uh, reading a book which is very interesting on the quatrains of, of Nostradamus, and you have to use a wild imagination to figure out what he's trying to say. But with the Bible, you don't have to do that. The Bible is exact and precise. It tells you when, where, and how, and who. Notice 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 through 20. Jesus is also the perfect lamb. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Now notice this. As of a what? As of a lamb without blemish and without what? Spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. Was Jesus the unblemished priest? Yes. Was Jesus the unblemished lamb? Yes. Jesus officiated his own sacrifice. And you know what's interesting? Not only was Jesus the perfect priest that offered himself the perfect sacrifice, but when he resurrected, he took his own blood as the priest into the holy place of the sanctuary. That's interesting. All of this pointed to whom? To Jesus. Notice Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. On the perfect nature of Jesus Christ, the fact that he had no moral defect, it says, 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in all points, such as we are, yet what? Yet without sin. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. The Bible is clear on this point. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, For he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be what? To be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin was made sin, so that we could be found what? So that we could be found righteous. One more text, notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. It says here, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And how did he do it? Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. These are only some of the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to the work of Jesus in the court, Jesus coming to die for our sins after living in the camp as the perfect lamb. You see, Jesus lives in the camp as the perfect lamb, and then he goes to the altar and he dies as the perfect lamb, and he officiates his own sacrifice. Now, I need to make one point very, very clear, and that is that what Jesus did in the camp and in the court, he did for every single person who has ever lived on planet Earth. Not only for the saved. His life and his death were for every single person who has ever drawn breath on planet earth. In other words, the work of Jesus in the camp and in the court is a corporate work that includes the whole human race. Let's read some verses about that. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. And I know what you're thinking. So that means everybody's going to be saved, right, Pastor? No. You see, that's why we need to understand our next couple of lectures, the work of Jesus in the holy place of the sanctuary. Now notice Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for the saved. No! It says, my test tastes death for what? For everyone. For how many people did Jesus die? For everyone. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. The same idea comes through. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for some. Ah, no, it doesn't say some. Who gave himself a ransom for what? For all to be testified in due time. Notice First John chapter 2 and verse 2. What Jesus did, he did for the whole world. He lived for the whole world and he died for the whole world. First John chapter 2 and verse 2. My little children, here he's writing to the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, that is for the followers of Jesus. But now notice, and not for ours only, but also for what? For the whole world. Well, you know the verse, for God so loved Fresno, 
uh, Fresno too. For God so loved what? The world that he gave his only begotten son. Allow me to read you a spectacular statement by Ellen White. Desire of Ages, page 753. She caught this nuance. There she says, Upon Christ, as our substitute and surety, was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. And now listen to this. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. How much guilt? The guilt of every descendant of Adam. You know, some people commit suicide because they feel guilty, depressed over their guilt. Imagine bearing the guilt of all of humanity from all ages. We have not suffered at all compared to Jesus. Our sufferings are nil compared to His. She continues saying, The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in his hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was his agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Powerful statement. For how many did Jesus bear the guilt? Every descendant of Adam, Jesus lived for every person who has lived, ever lived on planet earth, and he died for every person on planet earth. His life and death are available for everyone. And so some people say, well, that means everybody's going to be saved, right? What is the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. John 3.16 includes all, but then it excludes some. That very verse. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And then what does it say? That whosoever believeth in Him, that means to have faith in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Did God give Jesus for the whole world? Who will benefit from what Jesus did? Those who believe in Him. By the way, this text, John 3.16, if you read the context, it's talking about the serpent that was raised up in the wilderness. Let's read about that in John chapter 3 and verse 14. I want you to notice something very important. You remember when Israel was being bitten by the snakes and they were dying because they were poisoned? Was it enough to raise up the serpent in the wilderness? No. What did people have to do? They had to look individually and personally, they had to look at the serpent raised in the wilderness. Is it enough that Jesus died? No. We have to what? We have to behold him by faith. It says there, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And then it says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, what? Believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now listen carefully. In our next lecture, we're going to see how Jesus pours out the benefits of what He did while He was on earth. We're going to talk about how you can claim what Jesus did. How His life and His death becomes yours. It's not automatic for everyone. You have to claim it. There are conditions that must be met in order for you, for you to benefit from His life and from His death. Believing in Him is one of them. Now, do you understand what the altar of sacrifice represents? Now let's talk about the laver. The laver represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Reviewing. Jesus lived a perfect life in the camp. Jesus died as a substitute on the altar in the court. Jesus resurrects at the laver, and as we'll notice tomorrow night, He enters into the holy place to intercede before His Father for those who come in faith to Him. By the way, do you know, do you know something very interesting? A person who touched a dead carcass was considered unclean because death was unclean. When Jesus died, he would have been considered what? Unclean. So what needed to happen with Jesus? He needed to be what? Cleansed. And at his resurrection, he's cleansed at the labor. Now let me read you a very interesting verse from Scripture. Go with me to Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. A very important verse. It says here, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the what? What do you wash with? Water, yes. And what was in the labor? Water. It says, with washing of what? Regeneration, that's an important word. Regeneration and renewing of the what? Renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now let me tell you what that Greek word is there. The Greek word that is translated regeneration is a compound word that is composed of two words, two Greek words. One is the word palin, which means again, and the word gen genesis or genesis which means what? What does Genesis mean? To begin. In other words, you put Pauline and Genesis together, and it means to begin what? To begin again. Most lexicons or dictionaries that I checked out of the experts in the biblical languages say that this means to regenerate, or it means rebirth. Now let me ask you, where was Jesus regenerated? What does regenerate mean? It means to give what? It means to give life what? What does re mean? Generate is to give life, but regenerate is to what? To give it again. Let me ask you, when was Jesus regenerated? When is it that he began again after his death? It was when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now, not only do you have here in this verse the washing, which refers to the laver, water, 
of regeneration, the word regeneration meaning beginning again or rebirth from the grave, but also you have renewing of the Holy Spirit. Allow me to tell you something about that word renewing. That word renewing is the Greek word koinotis. And let's read another verse in the New Testament that uses that word renewing to see what it refers to. It's actually used in only two other verses in the New Testament. It's used in Romans 6 and verse 4 and Romans 7 and verse 6. We're only going to read Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Notice what this word renewing refers to. It says, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into what? Death. Death. That just as Christ was raised, so what is the theme here? It's death and what? Resurrection. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus, as Christ, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? In newness of life. What happens in baptism? Do we die with Christ in baptism? Are we buried with Christ in baptism? Do we resurrect to newness of life in baptism? Absolutely. So what does this word here mean? Newness in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's referring to what? It's referring to the resurrection. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So after Jesus dies, because his body is a corpse, it has to be what? It has to be cleansed. And so it's cleansed where? When Jesus resurrects with a glorified body. He resurrects at the labor. It's the renewing of his life. It's the regeneration of his life. In other words, the labor represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus basically lived in the camp with us. He lived his perfect life there as a perfect priest and a perfect lamb. Then he came to the altar of sacrifice and he offered himself. He is the officiating priest in his own sacrifice. At the labor, he's regenerated or his life is renewed as we read in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. In other words, he resurrects from the dead with his glorified, immortal, and incorruptible body. Now here's the very important question that will set the stage for our next study together. Where would you expect Jesus to go next? Do you know what most Christians believe? They say, Jesus jumped from the court to the most holy place. My question is, is there a holy place between the court and the most holy? Of course. Do you think Jesus jumped over the holy place into the most holy place directly? Absolutely not. Did Jesus have a function to fulfill in the holy place of the sanctuary? He most certainly did. He had a role to fulfill where the seven branch candlestick is. He had a role to fulfill where the table of showbread is. He had a role to fulfill where the altar of incense is. All three of those pieces of furniture represent something very important concerning the relationship between Christ and His people. So the next step that we find uh, Jesus taking in His sanctuary walk 
is going into where? Going into the holy place of the sanctuary. And the question is, what did he go into the holy place for? You know, you ask, you ask a Christian today, what has Jesus been doing the last 2,000 years? They say, hmm, good question. For most Christians, everything was finished when Jesus died on the cross. That's it. That's not it. Because Jesus lived in the camp, he died in the court, he resurrected at the labor, he goes into the holy place, and then he goes into the most holy place. Let me ask you, is there a function of Jesus after his work in the court on planet earth? Most certainly. And we're going to study about his work in the holy place tomorrow and also on Friday night. We're going to see that in the holy place is where we can claim the benefits of what Jesus did while he was on earth. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.